Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. Today's episode of Hey Kids Comics is very special. Is it? They're all special. The, the In their are. own way, aren't they? Everything is beautiful. I do keep being told at school that I'm special. In their own way. And when everyone's special. No one's special. No one's special. Yeah, so we're doing a comic book show. It's very interesting. Do we have anything to say uh, this week? So. Justified's back. It is. The coolest man on television has returned. Raylan Givens. I doff my cap to thee. I was going to say, I didn't know I was ever on TV. Well, you're not. <laughs> and if you were, you'd have to be played by Timothy Oliphant to be the coolest man on television. And you're not, so... He was in Hitman, though, and it wasn't cool. Yeah, well, he shaved his head for that. He didn't. You could see his hair. It looked horrible. Well, he was the best thing about Die Hard 4. Granted, that's not really a competition worth winning. He was the best thing about Hitman, but that's not a competition <laughs> worth winning. Uh, and what else? Oh, yeah, Marvel have pulled the DC and that released is. an image from an upcoming solicitation that reveals that Amazing Spider-Man number one's coming out in April of... Ah, so are they rebooting them? Well, there's Amazing Spider-Man ended with issue 700, isn't there? Are they, are they rebooting with Peter Parker coming back and he'll be Peter Parker the in an issue The image one? seems to show that Peter Parker has returned. Right. But let's let's have a quick show of hands, lovely <laughs> listeners. How many people are surprised by that development? Because that wasn't the point of the story, was it? The point of the story was Paul Spataro, hi Paul, pointed out, and then I stopped having an aneurysm, that this was just the death and return of Superman, but with Spider-Man in it. The central protagonist is taken out of the picture, believed to be dead, but there is enough wiggle room there for you to go, ah, I'm a bit suspicious of this. What's the wiggle room now? I don't know. From from where I'm up to, his body's missing from the grave now. Parkeroptomy? Well, there's something missing from a grave. Ah, I forget what, but anyway. Uh, His position is taken by somebody else who seems to be that man, as with Superman, as with Nightfall, as with this. So it turns out that Dr. Octopus was turning himself into Terminator Spider-Man. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be a development they didn't see coming. (laughs) Over the course of time, chinks in the armour appear and people start to realise he's not what he says he is. Cyborg Superman, Asbats, Ock, Spock as people uh, I believe people are calling him before the triumphant return at nightfall death and life of Superman and presumably this Spock era of Spider-Man and for the most part I've been enjoying it I've been I think it's been a pretty fun ride I'm not being read I'm, I'm not reading Marvel uh, I'm reading more Marvel than DC now I do like I've just jumped, dumped another two DC books haven't I which ones I've dumped Superman Batman Okay, okay. Uh, I don't think I'll carry on with Harley Quinn. 
first issue was alright but it's not worth that much money I may pick it up in the 50p bins if it's available and I think Superman Unlimited will be going after the uh, nine issue opening story arc I'll give the full story arc it's due yeah but I think it's not impressed me enough to carry on buying it besides I'm more interested in picking up Fantastic Four number one and Silver Surfer number one yeah that are coming out in a couple of months I'm just not reading much Marvel I like Spider-Man I like Daredevil. I just haven't read them in a long time, and I'm not well, think, rushed to pick I, back up. I think with Daredevil and both of Spider-Man now, you'll be like, well, I know that they're coming to an end now, so knowing what you're like, you will wait till Daredevil volume more. finishes, and you'll just blitz through all of them in one go. Yeah. Which is probably the way to go with Superior Spider-Man. He'll probably read better in that way. Although, to be fair, I have less problems with reading a single issue of Superior Spider-Man I'm thinking I've got my money's worth than I do with... What did I read yesterday in about three minutes? Batman. Batman Superman, wasn't it? It was just Batman. Just Batman. And I like Batman. I yeah. like Scott Snyder's Batman. But, yeah, Batman Superman, I'm... No, that's just not doing it for me. Mm-hmm. And this whole sideways art thing, whilst I think the art is much better now, it's not Jay Lee. I don't like Brett Booth. I'd rather right, like Jay okay. Lee. Right, See, I'd prefer Brett Booth on a yeah. Superman book. I'm not saying Jay Lee couldn't be an excellent Batman artist on a, on a moody, gothic Batman story. But he's not a good... But he's not a Superman artist, is he? Yeah. Let's be honest. But, no, I think I think that will be, be going as well. But more and more as I'm reading these, I'm thinking these read better in trades. And I'm thinking maybe we should move over oh, to trade paperbacks. I recently read all of Snyder's Batman run in one go and it was more enjoyable. Yeah, well, that's something else. I wouldn't mind reading all that again as well. Digging yeah. out all 25 issues of that and just plowing through. You pick up a lot more. Because yeah. so much laid down in zero. Well, he's, that he's got it all yeah. mapped out, hasn't he? He said yeah. that on Fat Man on Batman. He knows exactly where he's going with it. Well, he said with his issue Detective 27 story that is the definitive end of that run. Even though he'll never get there as a writer, that's where it'll end. Alright. I'm looking forward to Detective 27. I think Detective Comics 27 will be the first issue of Detective Comics I've bought since New 52 started. I think we have like the first ten. Do we? Yeah. I, th- I thought we only bought the first three. No. We, we bought a few more than that. Right, okay, fair enough. See, I don't remember. See, I was, I was in Oxfam the other day, which yeah. is a charity shop, lovely listener, if you don't know what Oxfam is. And I went in because they had a couple of graphic novels in the the window as they do yeah, yeah and they didn't have anything interesting in the graphic novel section but as they did they have do. a pile of comics yeah so I'm leafing through these comics and they had an almost complete run of Batman Streets of Gotham hmm. and I'm missing two or three issues and so I picked them up fair enough made up it's only a quid so it was a little gift and uh, they also had issues of Flash and Superman New 52 stuff yeah and I could not for the life remember where we ba- well Superman we bailed out after George Perez didn't we did we only get six issues of Superman yeah, yeah. so I could have picked any of that but well, maybe if they're still there next week, I may get them. Because it does, it does pain me <laughs> that there is a comic book version of Superman that, that I don't like. I would like them to be publishing something I do enjoy regarding Superman, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, should we do an email before yes. we get into EC Comics? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just one, just one email. We're only doing one email, yeah. No, no, we may end up doing a couple, I don't know. What are we now? We're, we're seven minutes in, we'll see how it goes. This one's called Batman and Silver Surfer. It's from Chris Franklin. Hey, Chris. I like Chris. Man, sent me free issues a back issue <laughs> I'm a big fan of people that send me free stuff they go to the top of my my mythical Christmas card list if I send Christmas cards yes to many many people from the show I can't because I don't know where they all live but if I did those people would be top of the, the heap people who gave you free stuff people who give me free stuff top of the heap <laughs> yeah. you know if you want to send us free stuff 
You get to the top of the Christmas card you list. You get to the top of the Christmas card list. Anyone who's ever sent me free stuff, pretend I sent you a Christmas card. <laughs> pretend I sent you a Christmas card saying love Andy and Mike. <laughs> Thanks for the free stuff. Thanks for the freebie. Anyway, we started an email and interrupted ourselves. Yeah. And I'd love, I love, lovely listener, I would love you to think that we do that deliberately, because it's now a running gag, but we really don't. No. <laughs> Chris says, hello, Leylands. Hello, Chris. There's only us two here today. There is. But technically, we are still plural Leylands. Yeah. So, okay. I won't bother telling you two that you are great, because that goes... Because it's a lie. (laughs) (laughs) That's not actually what Chris says. Chris says, it's a great show, and we appreciate him saying that. Mm -hmm. Don't we, love? You just said I wasn't here, so... Well, you weren't a minute ago, but now you are. He said, hello, Leylands. You can say hello to him. Hello. There you go. I'll try to keep this briefer than usual, says Chris. I don't see why, why Chris, because we've waffled, quite frankly. Well, that's why he needs to keep it brief. That's a good point. Yeah. Silver Age Batman. Interesting that you chose the earlier pre-New Look Batman to examine. Despite Morrison's obsessions, I feel the heavy sci-fi era is the weakest in Batman's long history. Despite the competent stories and art of folks like Finger and Sprang. I think the two tales you picked are rare exceptions, where the fantastical elements actually work within the story pretty well. Most of the time, it's as if Batman and Robin are in the wrong comic. Imagine putting the Punisher in an issue of Tiny Titans and you get the idea. I think that would be a pretty awesome comic. It would, yeah. <laughs> they have put zombies in Archie at the moment. Have they? Yeah. They put the Punisher in Archie, haven't they? Yeah. Hasn't the Punisher been to Riverdale? So, okay. Batman can work in a sci-fi story, as these tales prove. But the fact was that editor Jack Schiff constantly dropped him and Robin on alien worlds or had strange aliens and transformations plague Gotham. By contrast, Schwartz's new-look emphasis on detective stories was a breath of fresh air, and despite the complete lack of gothic mood or atmosphere, seemed much more appropriate for a Batman tale. Um, I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, we've said before, 50s Batman's not an old Ballywick, is it? it I, I think it's my favourite. Is it? Second See, for favorite. me, it's not Batman. Yeah. That's not to say I can't appreciate them on some level, but I, I'd never feel any urge. When we did Happy Birthday Superman, I was suddenly, I've, I'll read Superman from any era and get something out of it. But with Batman, the 50s stuff kind well, of leaves me cold. It's a lot more entertaining than most Batman stories nowadays. That's why I like the Morrison stuff. It's Morrison, so I like it, but it's back going on, like the 50s. It stuff. is, it is quite insane. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, the, the, the Schwartz detective stuff, you know, it's better, because Batman isn't disappearing off to Pink Worlds. Yeah. Every now and again, of fighting aliens, but still not, still don't feel right to me. I don't okay. know why. So, what's, what's your Batman then? My Batman from 1969 onwards. I've said before you could cancel Batman. Yeah. For me, from about 1949 to 1969, and it wouldn't bother me in the slightest. You could go straight from 1949 to 1969, and I'd be happy because nothing in the 50s and 60s really speaks to me. That's not to say there's not stuff in there I don't like. Yeah. Um, Castle with Walls, World Danger. It's a favourite Batman story. That's from the early sixties. Um, Secret of Batman's Utility Belt is a great story. Yeah, from the late fifties. But for the most part, it's just not my bag. Did he leave you on this planet? He did. <laughs> yes, and I was made up with that. Uh, Chris continues. I've never read much Solo Silver Surfer. So I can't really comment on other stories. The ending of this story reminded me of Lee and Kirby's excellent This Man, This Monster. From Fantastic Four issue 51. The nameless character we are introduced to in that story makes the ultimate sacrifice, and few will ever know, just like in the Surfer tale. I do agree that Lee had a problem with wrapping things up neatly at times, and that does show here. Still, the raw power and emotion of the story come through in your excellent description. Well, thank you very much, Chris. 
and it wasn't that story till the last minute, was it? We were going to do um, the Asgard one. Yeah. What's it called, that? I don't know. It's got uh, the good, the bad and the uncanny. Yeah. Is that the name of it? We were going to do that one. And the, the very, very last minute, and by last minute I mean Michael had actually read the good, the bad and the uncanny. I read Michael doesn't read the comics that we cover until the day before. Yeah. And at the very last minute <laughs> I said, we're not doing the good, the bad and the uncanny, we're going to do the one after it. But I forgot what that, uh, which one we were doing, so when I got the um, omnibus out, I read both of them. Well, it worked out. Well, I was reading it, going, oh, it's only like a 20-page story. And it wasn't! It's long, I'm going into page 30. How long is it? <laughs> got your value for money in the Silver Edge, <laughs> dude. Comparing the two tales is nigh impossible. Oh, I don't know, Chris, I think we gave it a pretty good try. It's often been stated that Mort Weisinger, editor of the Superman titles, and Jack Schiff considered their comics geared more towards children than the pre-teens Julius Schwartz seemed to target. Or maybe Schwartz just thought kids were smarter. Lee definitely seemed to be aiming for teens and young adults even, although there was plenty for the young kids to enjoy. I can't really say who would win between the Batman double feature and the Surfer. It's like apples and oranges. Both taste pretty good and are good for you. Given Andrew's love of Spider-Man, especially Lee Ditko Spidey, I think the Man of Steel has an uphill battle next episode. Chris. Um, I wonder, I'm just looking through the emails. Did Chris get back to us after we did that? Because I like to think somebody would have been pleasantly surprised by that. So... I like to think Chris Chris has emailed us a couple of times since then, so I'll have to have a look if he does address Ditko Spider Man versus Superman. Cause you would think yeah. I was just gonna say, Oh, this Ditko stuff, uh, this urinates all over this this <laughs> other book. We didn't actually do that. No. You know. I, I did try to give we, it we were a much fur, more polite about it. We did try to give it a fur crack of the whip. Yeah. Which I, I think we you know we tried anyway, I don't know if we succeeded. Our next email is from Professor Allen. Who is a proper professor. With funny little letters. Yeah, yeah, he's not like that Professor Michael Bailey bloke (laughs) who's got an honorary (laughs) professor title. No, 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 no. Professor Allen earned his professorhood. I'm only jealous. (laughs) Wish somebody would call me a professor. (laughs) Professor Allen hosts the Quarter Bin podcast and the Short Box Showcase podcast with his daughter. Because all the cool kids are now doing podcasts about comics with their offspring. Do you not mean all the cool kids are doing podcasts with their parents? All right. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I'll go with that. Okay. Leyland's Professor Allen. I've appreciated your DC versus Marvel compare and contrast Silver Age episodes. Well, thank you very much. Great conversation about an era that deserves some of the criticism it receives, but also contains some real gems. Thank you for pointing out both the positive and negatives of the stories you selected. But the comparison between the big two is not totally valid, because DC's Silver Age was specifically a reaction to the events of 1954, the Wortham hearings, and the resultant comics code. So they had to retrofit existing characters into the new realities of the post-Wortham comics world, and thus they rearranged their editing and writing to give super pets and imaginary stories. When Stan Lee decided to get into hero comics in the early 60s, he had the advantage of being able to start from scratch, of not having to modify pre-existing titles, and they certainly saw how far DC had swung in that squeaky clean direction, and thought, rightly, that there was room in the marketplace for more mature storytelling. Because of this, I maintain that Marvel didn't really have a Silver Age in the same way DC did, and therefore the comparisons are slightly skewed. There are times in a business when being first to a market is a big advantage, but not always. Sometimes being able to react to the first company's actions actually gives the second company a certain type of edge. As always, I enjoy the show. Keep up the good work, blokes, Professor Allen. Well, there's a couple of interesting points there. And if you remember 
the last time Professor Allen emailed into the show, his email ended up being a discussion point for over 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> a lovely listener, I don't think this tangent is going to be quite that long. However... Okay, you start watches up. Whilst I do agree that a like-for-like comparison isn't entirely fair, one, that was the premise of the show and I bent... The, the comics to fit my premise. I don't normally like doing that, but I did it. But my personal opinion, subscribed to by nobody but me, is that Marvel's golden and silver age is completely different to DC's. We refer to them as the golden age and the silver age because, shut up, because that's the general shorthand that we use as comic book fans. We know when the golden age started, we know when the silver age started, etc, etc. But for me personally... The Marvel Universe Golden Age is yeah. from the first issue of Fantastic Four to to Fantastic Four 102 when Jack Kirby left, or Amazing Spider-Man 100 when Stan Lee left for the first time. That's the end of Marvel Golden Age. Right. Marvel Silver Age begins around the then, either when Kirby left FF or when Lee left Spider-Man for the first time, and runs to Jim Shooter taking over. That's my Marvel Silver Age, because there's an awful lot of good, adventurous and interesting stuff in Marvel in the 70s that is the Silver Age, whereas DC at that point are in the Bronze Age. Mm. And then the Silver Age of Marvel is Jim Shooter's run. Arguably the second best era of Marvel comics ever, where pretty much every Marvel comic you picked up from when Shooter took over in 78, 79... They're about something like that. To when he left in 87, 88. Pretty much every comic was a gem in the early 80s. Mm. There wasn't a bad Marvel comic. Even the worst of Marvel's output at that point was eminently readable. So, Shooter is... Bronze. At that point, we get into the 90s, which I call the Image. Nobody else calls it this. But I'm... I'm Because Image Comics. Uh, I I get it. I get it. But Marvel started... The Image Comics Revolution. Where, uh, I mean, I know DC had McFarlane for a bit, yeah. but arguably it's his work on Hulk and Spider-Man that put him in the limelight. Same thing with Jim Lee, same thing with Mark Silvestri, same thing with Eric Larson. I know that they did work for DC, mm. but it's the Marvel work that caused them to go off and form Image. So the 90s, as far as Marvel is concerned, is the Image, and then you get into the, the modern age of comics from 2000 onwards when Quasada took over. Yeah. And I actually think that's a much easier definition than DC's gold and silver, bronze. Because what is after bronze, really? Is it the post-crisis age? Is that the dark age? Is it the dark age? Or is, is that it the modern the age? Mo- exactly. So, oh, wait, no, it's dark and then modern. So at what point does modern stop being the modern age? And then, isn't it... He- heroic, or is that Marvel that had the heroic age? The heroic age, see? Yeah. See, that, my problem with calling it the modern age, at what point does it stop being the modern age? Because there was a thing at some point that the modern age started in 1986. Well, 1986 isn't modern anymore, is it? I thought it was 90s to 2000s. But that's not modern that's anymore, is it? everything was trying to be postmodern. If you consider that 1990 is now nearly 25 years ago, right. is that modern? Most people your age would not consider something 25 years old modern, would they? It depends on how you class it. If you say, oh, that's not modern, but if at the time it was trying to be modern, then that would be the modern age of comics. But it's but calling it the modern age of comics, when it's you see what I mean, though? The but, title is a misnomer. 
Can you call it the golden age when another age might be better? Well, the golden age of comics just signifies that this was the beginning, essentially, and it was an era of experimentation and change. Yeah. Batman alone went from being a pulp slash gothic horror strip to being a proper superhero strip. Mm. Superman went from being the champion of the oppressed that he was, vigilante, to being a, a fully deputised officer of the law. Yeah. And then the Silver Age is by and large remembered for Jimmy Olsen turning into a turtle and, and Batman and Robin having adventures on other planets. Mm. But that's, that's, why, that's what I refer to as Marvel, just myself. It's never caught on, mainly because I've never told anybody before. <laughs> I like it. But that's what I... To me, Marvel's ages would be completely different from DC's. Yeah. But it's just general shorthand to say the Silver Age and people know what you're talking about. Did, didn't Marvel ever have the Dark Age that DC did? Um, I don't know that Marvel have ever been quite as... Dark. There's nothing in, say, Spider-Man's back catalogue that matches the killing joke. But the death yeah. of Gwen Stacy is pretty dark, dude. Mm. And the death of George Stacy and some of Peter David's stuff on Holt with Speed Freak and um, not Rick Jones, Jim Wilson dying of AIDS. Yeah. Some of that stuff's pretty dark, but I don't think it ever got as bleak as Killing Joke and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. But, that's, you know, other people may have other opinions. Very quickly, we will move on to one more email because it's Luke Giaconetti. And we can't not have a Luke Giaconetti email. No. The show's not the show without a Luke Giaconetti email. Sensational scenes of superior suspense and explosive excitement with the Man of Steel and the Wall-Crawling Wonder. That's pretty good heading. They're always pretty good. I'm liking Luke's heading. Do you think he plots them out in advance? Oh, no, do you think he's, he's writing them as he's listening to the show? Well, yeah. Oh, do you think he just spends all his time just coming up with a headache? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. for me, that would be a week's work. When he's on his way to work, <laughs> striking it in the car. Oh, crap, lights on green. It takes me forever to come up with the bloody show blurbs every week, largely because I don't remember what the episode was about. Yeah. I sat down last night to go, oh, it's that Slam Bradley one that we recorded before Christmas. How the hell am I supposed to remember what we talked about? Even though I have listened to Michael it again. Michael and Andrew talk about Slam Bradley. <laughs> the end. <laughs> please, please tune in. It's not as boring as that. Honest. Alright, fair enough. Hey Kids Comics. Amazing audio by Andy Leyland. Magnificent musings by Michael Leyland. Deplorable funding by Dufo de Monzo. <laughs> and it is appalling. Let me tell you. It's absolutely deplorable. The, the budget for this show. It's, what is it? It's serpents? Zero. Well, yeah. And some string. Hmm, a show with Andy Leland talking about Superman and Lee Ditko Spider-Man. Seems a little bit on the nose, don't you think? Ah, yes, yeah, so that was an excellent topic for a show, quite frankly. I could do that every week. Could you? I could totally do a Superman Spider-Man podcast every single week. I'm thoroughly enjoy it. I think they only did two that would get old after a while. Yes, yes, I think, I think the audience would probably get bored of it before I did. Yeah. <laughs> that having been said, continues Luke, I enjoyed this episode quite a bit. Only quite a bit? I liked the juxtaposition between the silly Superman stories and one of the absolute definitive Marvel comics. The Silver Age itself has always been this weird convergence, the silly and the melodramatic, the imaginary story and the trapped in a world he never made. Having essentially, no pun intended, discovered the truth of the Silver Age via the phone book reprints, I find that switching between the two sorts of stories can be jarring, but in the end, both are enjoyable and both are legitimate. So I really appreciated you guys covering these stories in this episode and this whole Silver Age series in general. Bronze Age One would be much appreciated. Notes, young Luke, are scribbled in the book. Yeah. For a Bronze Age One. I think it'd be more of a 70s mm. one than a, a Bronze Age 
one in total. Yeah. Because if you're going to end the Bronze Age, we would have to talk about whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, wouldn't we? Mm. And I don't know that I'm interested in doing that. I mean, it may be interesting too. I'm more interested in comparing and contrasting the 70s stuff mm. than do it. So if we did that, it wouldn't be a Bronze Age one. It will. The notes we've got scribbled in the book are more pertaining to the 70s as a decade rather than the Bronze Age generally. But we'll see. We want to do it. Luke's email continues, which is better in the Silver Age, Marvel or DC? A time-old question, one which I don't think anyone can really answer. Too much of it has to do with taste and personal preference and subjective appraisals. As the Joker says in Tim Burton's Batman, this is attractive, this is not. I'm beyond all that now. Ultimately, the Silver Age itself encapsulates the argument put forth by Mike Bailey and Shag. Find your joy and enjoy those comics that make you smile or shout or laugh or cry or even stop and stir with eyes agog. Comics cannot and should not be hemmed into narrowly defined stereotypes. But I'll get off my soapbox now. No, feel free. In fact, you can borrow our soapbox, Luke. We don't mind. We'll lend it you for a minute. In other nudes... Oh, in other nudes? <laughs> I, I don't think I want to no, other no. nudes. I know it's an audio medium, but look, no. In other news, always good to get some of the dead parrot sketch. He's just pining for the fjords. <laughs> I did I did a dead parrot sketch thing, do you remember? Uh, you have no recollection of this, do you? I, I, yeah, I was just being reminded of it. All right, fair enough. The phone bits at the end of the show was hilarious. I'm glad people <laughs> enjoyed that. I, I almost I didn't include it. that. But it was you and your mum saying, no, no, Dad, it was genuinely <laughs> funny hearing you talk to the telemarketer guy. It was. Thanks, dude, Luke. You're very welcome. P.S. Luke Cage, here of Fire 7. I own this one, and I have it as an essential. Sweet Christmas. Well, I hope you didn't get too excited, Luke, because I changed my mind on that one at the last minute as well, didn't I? Yes. <laughs> at the last minute, I got that idea of doing, well, let's do a comparison of the two Christmas types of stories. One that is a Christmas story... And one that's just set at Christmas. Let's do that, Michael! And you just went, yeah, all right. <laughs> so I changed my mind about Hero Fire issue 7 at the last moment. So I do apologise if you, if you were particularly looking forward to us covering that. Yeah. <laughs> Lesson though, don't tell people what we're going to do next week in advance. And yet you always do. And yet I always do. I've only ever changed my mind at the last minute once or twice, haven't I? Uh, I don't recall doing it that much. There have been a couple of times when you completely change your mind on the entire show. Yeah, but if I've done that, I've edited the show before it's gone up. Right. Because I, I have, yeah. And I did so remember, and I just cut that bit from you, the show. You didn't redub it with another voice actor. No, that would have been funny. We should have got Matt Berry in <laughs> to redub me. <laughs> that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Denim Industries! <laughs> Uh, anyway, break time. Yes, we went a bit longer than we thought we would. Break, break, break. Plug, plug, plug. Somebody else's show. It's dead good. Go and listen to it. But not until you've listened to us. And we'll be right back with EC Comics. Look at the light. Is that, is that saying something? What's, what's that noise? What's that? Do you like listening to audio science fiction? Are you a fan of writers reading their work? My name is Mike Luoma. By day, I play tunes on the radio. The rest of the time, I'm creating science fiction and comic books. And I bring my two worlds together each week with my glow-in-the-dark radio podcast, where I read you my stuff. You hear free science fiction audio adaptations every week. And I give away the audio versions after I've podcast them, too. Free science fiction audio books on iTunes and at audiobooks.com. 
I hope you'll check out my Glow in the Dark radio podcast or any of my free science fiction audiobooks at glowinthedarkradio.com. I'm Mike Luoma. Thanks for listening. What's it say? Glow in the dark. Glow in the dark. Glow in the dark. Glow in the dark. And we're back. EC Comics, originally named Educational Comics, was founded by Maxwell Gaines in 1945 after selling out his share of all American comics to national publications. Initially launched as a children's educational line of comics featuring such titles as Picture Stories from the Bible and Picture Stories from American History, this inauspicious comics company would go on to be one of the most controversial, influential and revered comics companies in the history of the medium. In 1947, Gaines was killed in a speedboating accident, and the company was passed over to his son, William. Young Bill Gaines was never a particular lover of comics, and the fact that when he inherited the company, it was, according to Time magazine, in debt to the tune of $110,000, may have given the young Gaines pause. Perhaps, young Mr. Gaines may have thought, it may be time to rethink the direction of EC Comics. A quick perusal of the unofficial rules of comics, dictated by editor Sheldon Moldoff, which included such mandates as Never show anybody stabbed or shot Show no torture scenes Never show a hypodermic needle Don't chop the limbs off anybody Never show a coffin, especially with anyone in it may have given Gaines his first ideas, but initially Gaines only showed up at the EC Comics offices to issue payment checks. But in 1948, Gaines hired Al Feldstein and set about cleaning house. Initially, they diverted attention away from the educational comics and tried other genres. Westerns, romance, detective and sci-fi, none of which set the sales figures alight. Inspired by the magazine Eerie, which debuted in 1947, Gaines and Feldstein decided to tap into the horror market and rebranded all their titles. War Against Crime became The Vault of Horror. Crime Patrol became The Crypt of Terror, itself renamed Tales from the Crypt after a few issues. Gunfighter became The Haunt of Fear. Saddle Romances gave way to Weird Science. And A Moon, A Girl, A Romance, a god-awful title anyway, became Weird Fantasy. Saddle Romance. Saddle Romance. Is that when the cowboys can't even wait to get off the horse? (laughs) Burback riding (laughs) day. All these new magazines were introduced within a few months in early 1950, with crime suspense stories premiering six months after that, and the final comic shock suspense stories dropping in early 1952. This radical rebranding reaped dividends. By 1953, business had never been better, and the company renamed itself Entertaining Comics. Sales were up, with their best titles selling 400,000 copies per month, and even the lesser titles selling 220,000 copies. Revenue for the company was up as well, with a gross income of over $1 million a year, with sales of over 10 million comics. But it's not the sales that kept EC the reader's favourites. These lurid tales of Old Testament vengeance, sin and demented souls were everything a subversive medium needed to survive. They were deranged enough for the kids to enjoy while still feeling dangerous. After all, mum and dad probably wouldn't approve, and that gave them their edge. 
They also provided sting-in-the-tail endings to keep the readers hooked until the last page, and the art by Jack Davis, Wally Wood, Joe Orlando and others was suitably detailed and groundbreaking, even if it was Feldstein's horrific caption boxes that really sold the images of terror to young, impressionable minds. Of course, as with all great entertainment of a questionable bent that is immensely popular with children, there's always someone, normally taking it upon themselves to be offended on behalf of others, who wishes to put an end to it. We had somebody like this when I was a child, a lady named Murray Whitehouse. Whitehouse, a typical interfering old busybody, took it upon herself to target Doctor Who as being responsible for childhood trauma and made her objections clear. The BBC, despite Whitehouse having no power or standing within the industry and without asking the children she claimed to be speaking for, capitulated to her whims and watered the show down. As a child, I just wondered who Whitehouse was to speak for me and what I liked and just wanted her to go away. Similarly, American children of the 1950s had their own Murray Whitehouse, Dr. Frederick Wortham. Wortham, a clinical psychologist specialising in disorders of the young, targeted comics as the cause of all ills. Where we see Superman, champion of injustice, Wortham saw a fascist. In Batman and Robin, Wortham saw perverts. And in Wonder Woman, he just saw a lesbian. In an utterly marvellous piece of deductive reasoning, he learned that the most juvenile delinquents he had examined were readers of horror comics, Therefore, horror comics must be a factor in their misbehaviour. I presume most of those children also drank Coca-Cola, but he didn't seem to feel the need to completely destroy the Coca-Cola Corporation. Maybe they weren't as easy a target. He's not entirely wrong about Wonder Woman, though, is he? Wonder Woman's not a lesbian! When the early Wonder Woman stories are all about bondage, written by a guy who shares his wife with his servant... It's just bondage! (laughs) Okay. In the 1950s, Estes K. Farber, who had made his name challenging the mob, would chair a Senate subcommittee hearing on the evidence provided by Dr. Wortham that comic books made kids go bad. The subcommittee made no judgments nor rulings, but the rampant publicity aided by Gaines' own testimony, which hindered more than it helped, resulted in a wave of negativity towards comics that it took years to recover from, and the industry created its own self-censorship board, the Comics Code Authority. Gaines refused to join the CCA, and, as quickly as they arrived, horror comics all but disappeared. Gaines' other venture, Mad Magazine, continued and prospered, but the heyday of the Crypt Keeper, it seemed, was long over. We've never read any EC Comics. Or have you read EC Comics? No. No, okay. So this was another first for us, and the idea for this was provided by listener James Hickson. We did some quick research on what were considered the best EC Comics stories, and we picked some purely at random from that list. Not very scientific, but then neither was Dr. Wortham. The stories we picked up from the wide variety of EC Comics being published at that time, and they are... Cutting Cards from Tales from the Crypt issue 32, cover dated October-November 1952. The Screaming Woman from Crime Suspense Stories issue 15, cover dated February-March 1953. Foul Play from Haunt of Fear 19, cover dated May-June 1953. The Switch from Tales from the Crypt 45, cover dated December-January 1954. And All Through the House, from Vault of Horror, issue 35, cover dated February-March 1954. These, we felt, gave a broad cross-section of the kind of stories EC were telling. 
We're kicking off with Tales from the Crypt, issue 32, largely because in publication date it's the earliest of the stories chosen, but also, with the exception of Mad Magazine, Tales from the Crypt is EC Comics' biggest gift to pop culture. Despite being cancelled in September of 1954, the title was incredibly influential on future movie makers. The first live-action adaptation of Tales came in 1972, starring Peter Cushing and Joan Collins. It was an anthology movie adapting a number of the comic stories into the film. The second, and most famous, was an HBO television series running from 1989 to 1996 and featured many stories adapted from the comics, not only Tales, but the other titles as well. It was a remarkably star-studded series for cable TV of the time. Instead of featuring the best and brightest Canada has to offer, there were contributions from many big Hollywood names, and all the shows were introduced by the Crypt Keeper, voiced by John Cassia. The series span off three movies, Demon Knight, Bordello of Blood, and Ritual. How anyone thought all this blood, gore and nudity was suited to a Saturday morning cartoon show is unknown, but such a thing did occur in 1993, cementing its legacy. An animated children's series based on Tales from the Crypt. I only wish Frederick Wortham could have seen that. The first story, Cutting Cards, was adapted into an episode of the TV show and starred Lance Henriksen. In the comics, this story only has a credit for the artist, Fred Peters, but according to the website comics.org, it was written by Al Feldstein. The cover for this issue is signed to Jack Davis and focuses on a different story to what we're covering. At the circus, a scantily clad dancing girl is about to be crushed by an elephant. The three story narrators, the Crypt Keeper, the Vault Keeper and the Old Witch, all appear in little circles down the side. Do you like this cover? I want to know what that elephant's doing. It's standing on her head, dude. Look at the elephant, and then look at the elephant's leg. Yeah, he does seem a little bit like he's he's turned at a weirdo angle. But you know, if my head was underneath an elephant's foot, that's the last thing I'd be thinking of. <laughs> quite frankly, I I looked at that cover and was quite surprised that this was the fifties because she's not wearing a lot for a nineteen fifties comic. Yeah. So and we've not audience. Yeah, yeah, we've not picked stuff with the most lurid of the covers. There's no decapitated heads on the comics we've picked. No, they're very boring. Yes. <laughs> were, you, were you expecting a couple of decapitated heads? At least two. <laughs> but, but Tales from the Crypt's reputation preceded it, did it? <laughs> Alright, fair enough. I'll have done a few little pixel. That's the only episode of the TV show not adapted from a comic. Is it? Yeah, the cartoon one. Yeah. Yeah, it's the only one now. Two gamblers, Gus Froney and Lou Grebis, hate each other so much they decide that this world ain't big enough for the both of them. And they challenge each other to a gambling contest in which one will lose their life. After both players draw an ace at cutting cards, the duo tries Russian roulette. A tense scene ends with a standoff when the gun jams at the fatal moment. Fed up, Gus suggests they get their doctors on the line and play chop poker. Chop poker is like strip poker, only instead of removing an article of clothing, they use a meat cleaver to remove a digit or limb. They have their personal doctors act as seconds during the bizarre duel to the finish, but the gamblers find themselves unable to proceed when they've both hacked each other's arms and legs off. Still, even in the hospital, the duo play each other at drafts, using their noses to push the pieces around. Uh, despite only being six pages, the Crypt Keeper gets a third of the page to tell us the title, and a further third of the page with a quasi-splash image of Gus attacking Lou with a meat cleaver. The art by Fred Peters is exemplary throughout. I didn't see the point of that little midway splash page of him attacking him with a meat cleaver, given that it doesn't actually happen in the issue. Uh, I felt they could have got two more panels of story, though. Hmm. Do you not think? Yeah, a bit... 
It's just, it's just like the splash pages and the silver <coughs> age. Yeah, but they didn't have enough room for a splash page. Yeah. So they did a splash panel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's call it that. A splash panel. All right. The second page dealing with the card game is competent enough, but it's hard to make a card game suspenseful on the printed page, even if the loser is promised death. This is largely because there's not really any inherent danger in cutting a few cards, unless you're going to get a paper cut. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. So... I thought this was off to a rather inauspicious beginning mm. when we were reading this first. I thought it would have been so funny if you did pull up like a three. Yeah. All right. <laughs> End of story. Three pages in, yeah. <laughs> the third page, however, is incredibly suspenseful, and Peters milks every ounce of drama out of the Russian roulette scene. It's a ten-panel page with the panels starting long and narrow and expanding slightly as the page progresses. The end of the past page established that the gun used has only one bullet in it, so as each protagonist plates the bullet to the temple and pulls the trigger, Peters emphasises the click sound effect, making it bigger, and starts adding perspiration to the the protagonist's brow. The palpable relief when each character pulls the trigger only to not die is remarkably tense given the printed medium can't rely on music or acting. An exceptionally well done scene. That was my favourite bit in the book. Mm. This one page. There's very little dialogue on it. Quite a few captions, obviously, because it's comic books of the time. But I do like that they just they start sweating more and more as the countdown goes through and the clicks get bigger. And bigger. I thought that page was excellent. Excellent example of sequential storytelling. The doctors are willing to just come over and attend their chop poker game after a phone call. I assume they're being paid very well. Yeah, well, the criminal doctors are assuming. Yeah, I presume so. So you think they're on the mob payroll? Either that or the wife's having to go at them again. So they've just gone, yeah, I'm going out now. Yeah. <laughs> I've got this urgent phone call. I'm going to go chop people up. Yeah, so you're like, I'm going to make sure people chop each other's up yeah. in such a way that they don't actually hurt themselves. All right, fair enough. The Crypt Keeper interrupts at this point to inform the reader what chop poker is and tell us that it has never been played to the finish. This implies that it's going to be played to the finish in this story, yeah. which it isn't, no. is it? doesn't actually... It kind of cops out in its ending. Pansy's pussy out. Yeah, I mean, when you're playing it, would you not say, well, if you won at Chop Poker, first of all, would you not say, right, cut his head off? Yeah. Would you not just go for the head? Yeah. I think game's over then. Or would you not start with the toes and work upwards? Yeah, it's just like, well, so I've I've started, no. If I'm playing Chop Poker with somebody and I win the first hand, I'm going, right, cut his head off. (laughs) Okay. I win. (laughs) Game over. Because they don't establish that you have to start with a little finger or anything, do they? All it says is, you lose a limb. And that's it. Mm. So, (laughs) I don't get the point of that, to be honest with you. There's a lovely line in the last panel of the story where Lou and Gus are seen in the hospital, sans arms and legs, and are playing drafts or checkers and moving pieces around with their noses and Lou asks Gus to pass the chewing gum because he plans to jump a few pieces. Well, I laughed. I thought that was funny. So he was going to put the chewing gum on his nose hmm. so that he can pick the piece up with his nose to jump over the other pieces to win. Excellent. <laughs> I, I thought that was quite a nice little black humour moment, to be honest with you. I thought it was quite funny. Uh, it was an interesting little tale, this, wasn't it? Some excellent artwork that really amps up the tension of the Russian roulette sequence. is easily the best part of the story. I did think the central idea here was a little stupid, that the world isn't big enough for the two of them. Surely it would have made more sense for one to operate out of New York and the other one to just bugger off to L.A. And then the two would never have to meet. But ignoring that, 
This is a claustrophobic little tale that highlights the dangers of gambling and obsessive behaviour. It wasn't quite the most horrible blood-curdling tale I've ever read, as the Crypt Keeper promises us, but it was a tense, well-done short. Considering I'd never read any EC stuff before except Mad Magazine, I didn't know what to expect, and was pleasantly surprised by how well this held up. It's nowhere near as gory or subversive as its legend will have you believe, but for its time, this was quite remarkable. In many ways, it's the captions that are more grotesque than the art, and it very definitely seems aimed at a much older audience than most comics of this time period. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this goes. What did you think of it, Michael? I just like the chop poke of it. Was that the only bit of it you liked? Yeah, well, the bit that grossed me out was when he, started, when he cut his pinky off. That gets me. Cut someone's other finger off or the thumb, you know, but the pinky, no, that's that's where I draw a line. Was that too much for you? Yeah, but you chop a man's thumb off, he'll tell you if it was women, women's underwear. <laughs> what if you pull, um... What if you pull his fingernail off with a pair of pliers? Oh, that's... You don't like that at all, do you? That, that film we were watching, get the horror eyes out, cutting the head off, yeah, but the fingernails... <laughs> The fingernails what I got you. Alright, fair enough. There are a number of other stories in this issue. Normally EC Comics horror stories were in between eight and ten pages. And there's also a letters text page hosted by the Crypt Keeper that was very similar in its tone to the later bullpen bulletins from Marvel. It's a very reader-friendly page addressing the reader directly and making them a part of the experience, something that Stanley would perfect throughout the 60s. Our next pick is The Screaming Woman from Crime Suspense Stories issue 15. One of the things EC were famous for was being inspired by other works and adapting them into the comics. Sometimes this was done rather underhandedly, but in the case of top science fiction author Ray Bradbury, EC frequently trumpeted that they were adapting his stories. Of course, this came after they adapted a Bradbury story without permission and subsequently reached an agreement with the author, thus avoiding a lawsuit. Such was the case here, with the cover proudly proclaiming that this issue is EC's adaptation of such a story as well as more jolting tales in the EC tradition. This cover by Johnny Craig has a bounding, gagged young lady be buried alive in a junkyard by a man who could be her husband or boyfriend or bank robber who's betrayed her to keep all the money. You don't know, do you? She could be just as big as a bad egg as him. I like how the guy on the cover is completely different to the guy inside the story. Otherwise, it would have just ruined it for us. Uh, well, I didn't get that that was a specific reference to the story that we've read. Was that not a reference to one of the other stories in the issue? I don't know. I assumed it was, because she'd been buried. It could be. And we didn't read the other stories in the issue. Or I didn't. Yeah, because the other one's water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink, so that's nothing to do with burying somebody alive, is it? So I just got that that was a symbolic cover rather than specifically representing the issue. But, you know, it could be representing the screaming woman, because that's the one that they're talking about on the cover, isn't it? There's a Ray Bradbury story in this issue. Yeah. So, alright, fair enough. This was also adapted into an episode of Ray Bradbury Theatre, starring Drew Barrymore, in which one of the characters reads the Tales from the Crypt comic. Okay. I was very interested in it in the fact that it Tales from the Crypt cover yeah. and back cover were both covers of the comics. So like that comic didn't have adverts, did it now? It's like when they read a newspaper on yeah. TV and film with the back page isn't sports. And you're like, where are you buying this oh, paper? The back page is the headline that they're reading about yeah. in the middle of the newspaper. <laughs> Which is a bit dumb. Alright, fair enough. This version was drawn by Jack Kamen. On the way for ice cream on a hot day, ten-year-old Margaret Leary hears the muffled screams of a woman as she takes a shortcut across the empty lot behind her house. 
She rushes home but can't get either of her parents to believe her. Her father finally acquiesces to his daughter's demands, saying he will go to the lot with her, but only if she eats all of her dinner. Dinner conversation turns to the neighbours, the Nesbits, with Margaret's mum teasing her husband that had things worked out differently, he could have been married to Helen Nesbitt. He even mentions that they had written a song together for each other, which interests Margaret's mum. Margaret's dad returns to the lot, but hears nothing. Margaret takes it upon herself, first to dig for the woman herself, and then later to try and track down who it is who may be missing in the town. Charlie Nesbitt acts all suspicious when Margaret asks where Helen is, but she manages to elude the man and returns to the lot where she hears a woman singing a song to herself. Margaret returns home and she repeats the song to her father. The man finally believes his daughter, as the lyrics are those of the song he and Helen composed only for the two of them. He gets his friends together and they dig her up before she dies. The briefness of the page count of this story, which is again is only an 8 to 10 page, means that an awful lot of the panels are very crowded with caption boxes and text. It's not that bad in a lot of places. The only really egregious notion was that on page 3, panel 1, the top half of Margaret's dad's head is covered completely by a speech balloon. But then half of it that is shown is covered in shadow. Mm, See, maybe they knew that it was going to be covered in a speech balloon, so they didn't really draw much, but you can only see his nose and his mouth. Yeah. That's not particularly... It reminds me of that issue of, um... Was it X-Men? Where a thought balloon has been placed right over Magneto's head. So you can't actually see him. I I quite like the dad in this one. Um... Oh, I thought it was quite sad Margaret had to buy time with her dad. Yeah. She's like, I'll give you all my pocket money if you spend some time with me, Dad. And Dad's like, oh, go and play, child. Oh, I, I thought the dad was hilarious. A screaming woman. Never knew one who didn't. <laughs> Sexist pig. Oh, I just say he sat there going, shut up, kid. I'm going to eat my dinner. Then I'm going to eat dessert. Then I'm going to sit here and have a fag. Then I'm going to watch some TV. Then I'm going to have a drink. Then I'm going to sleep for a bit. And then, and then I, I, I think might. about spending yeah. time with him. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because not it's even true. my daughter anyway. <laughs> not if he's been knocking up Helen Nesbitt now. Well, yeah. Uh, Charlie Nesbitt is portrayed as a huge scumbag from the minute that Margaret meets him, which was a little bit on the nose. Some more subtlety here may have been nicer, but I suppose the limited space available affected the pacing slightly. I do wonder if he was this obvious in the original Ray Bradbury story. Because he's very shifty in the comic, isn't he? His eyes are always in shadow and they always look a little bit manic. And he's always puffing away on his fag and yelling at Margaret. And the way he grabs hold of her as well. I'll be honest with you, I thought he was going to do a lot worse with her than just play cards. Yeah. But thankfully he didn't go... So he's a scumbag, but he's not a child killer. No, no, no. So he's a moderate scumbag. This was in the 70s. It was in the 50s, dude. No, it was at the BBC, but oh well. <laughs> dear me yes yes we have been watching a lot of uh, Toast of London I thought this was excellent I really did like this one I thought it was a brilliant short tale but Ray Bradbury was one of my favourite writers as a kid Uh, a lot of his stories lend themselves to audio and comic book adaptations as his stories are quite wordy 
character-led pieces. And I was always quite disappointed by TV and movie adaptations of his work, such as The Martian Chronicles, which I thought was a great boot, but a boring TV series. I thought this was pretty gripping, very fast-paced due to the brevity of its page count, but perfectly structured. Bradbury's novelist approach sets up a number of small plot points, the Nesbitt's arguing and the father's previous relationship, in a subtle way at the beginning of the story and brings all the threads together perfectly at the end. There's a little bit of the boy who cried wolf to the story, although we're given no indication Margaret is a tall tale teller, and there is a little exploration of the idea that children are never listened to, especially when it's not just the parents, but nobody who listens to poor Margaret. But this was a very entertaining story. Excellent art as well, although it's not hard to think that Margaret's dad rescuing Helen led to he and her starting an affair that led to the implosion of Helen's family. Margaret's family, sorry. Well, is the implication of the ending not that after he dug them up, he left them for her? Because that's, that last panel does say the last time I saw my dad. Well, I got the last time I saw him, he was in the empty lot digging, but you can certainly read it as he dug up Ellen Nesbitt and then said, oh, Bye! Because yeah. <laughs> he certainly didn't seem interested in his daughter. Well, no, no, he, he, he doesn't write songs for his wife and he beats no, up his kid. No, he's, he's never wrote a song for his wife. No. He doesn't beat up his child. He's he's in that panel, that red background indicates violent and danger. He's not going to... He's asking a word to cheer the song. Sorry, he totally is. And then he gets down on his knees in front of his daughter to talk to her. He's about to give her the he's backhand. He's not this was going the 50s. to give her the backhand at all. That's not going to happen. It was the 50s. Parents slapped the kids to wake him up. <laughs> did they really? <laughs> <laughs> we, we did that in the 90s. <laughs> Next! Oh, I've not asked you what you thought of it. Oh, I thought it was fine enough. That's it? Is that your entire opinion on it? I, I, I didn't think it was all that great. Why not? I, I just didn't. You're allowed to say it. I didn't think it was all that great. I didn't think it was all that great. Alright, what did you not like about it? I don't know. I enjoyed it, but... I thought it went on for a bit too long. Only eight pages! There was a lot of dialogue in those eight pages. Oh, I'm sorry, did I make you read you instead get, of giving you a modern comic? You could get a, a Bendis 12-issue story out of that. Well, there is... I, I will agree... No, see, I disagree with you. I was going to say I will agree. I disagree with you. I think that could have been another couple of pages long. And they could have padded it out a little bit more. Not padded it out. They could have let the tail breathe a bit more. Yeah. I'm not saying make it a Bendis six-parter, like that god-awful Spider-Man limited series he did. Yeah. Which was truly appalling. There, there is a story later on, though. That, oh, yeah, this next one that we're doing, which has a ridiculous amount of words in it. God forbid I should make you actually read. No, 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 no. It's, You're a proper modern comics that, fan, aren't you? If this takes me more than three minutes, I'm not interested. Every panel has an essay written into it telling us what's going on in the, the panel. See, I don't agree with that. I thought the captions were mostly pretty good at telling the story. I In fact, I thought the captions were more horrific than a lot of the art. Yeah. His descriptions of gouging somebody's eye out, it was much more chilling than actually seeing somebody getting their eye gouged out. Well, that's, you know, it's just me. So, all right, then next is Foul Play from Haunt of Fear, issue 19. This was one of the most controversial stories published by EC, being singled out by Robert Warshaw in his 1954 essay, Paul, the Horror Comics and Dr. Wortham, where he describes it as the outer limits of good taste. It was also one of the many examples used by Frederick Wortham in his book, Seduction of the Innocent. It was written by Al Feldstein and drawn by Jack. Jack Davis. The cover is simply signed Ghastly, which seems to be a pseudonym for Graham Ingalls, and shows a hooded man raising his axe to behead two attractive women with their heads on the block. 
the baying crowd looks on. I like that axe he has. I like that cover. I, yeah, it's <laughs> I just noticed axe. it's a double axe, yeah. <laughs> That's very time-saving, isn't it? It's going to be really strong, I'm, though. I'm very impressed by the, the guy's the forethought he's put into the time management, though. Yeah. <laughs> I knew two people. Are, maybe he's getting paid by the head. So he thought, well, if I do two at once, I can get twice as much money for a day's work. That's very clever. It is. I'm very He has to be really strong, though. Well, he does look like a big burly bloke, It takes it? at least two hits to cut someone's head off. And well... Two people, that's four hits. There is the thing, if you do a clean cut, supposedly death is instantaneous, but an awful lot of people... Because wasn't it one of them things that if you were doing this, it was recommended that the people who were being beheaded tipped the guy who was cutting the head off to get it right the first time okay so that they died quickly instead of having to hack at them right. and kill them and my thinking of that was always well yeah you could do that but if he gets it wrong it's not like you can get a refund <laughs> that was just my thinking what well, do I know? could you imagine how it'd be worse for the woman because the, is that two women I think it's one guy alright oh, see I couldn't yeah I suppose see, so. the way he's going to angle it is he's going to get a clean cut on the guy mm. but it'll hack at the woman yeah it is unless he comes down clean on top of both of them that's that's going to that's going to be painful yeah in my opinion I can't believe we're here, I sat here <laughs> analysing the technique of being able to behead people well it's one hit to, to break <laughs> the bone okay and then if he hits it just right he can and you hold the head up just right you can get it off in another hit right fair enough so you need at least two hits to okay. cut someone's head off yeah, I'll take your word for that <laughs> since I've never done it really not it's, no, it's one no. of my favourite pastimes is, is that what you do at night <laughs> Central City star pitcher Herbie Statton takes to the baseball diamond in Bayville's ballpark hoping to bring to a close the Bush League pennant tournament in Central City's favour Statton cheats at the diamond, moving in so the ball hits his elbow, a move unseen by the umpire and runs to first base. Then he cheats again, stealing second base as Bayville prepare to bat, with Statton scratching second base holder Jerry Deegan with his shoe spikes. At first Jerry is fine, but slowly he starts to feel dizzy. After taking the diamond, Jerry strikes out and keels over. The doctor examines him and proclaims he is dead by a slow-acting poison. Bayville's team adjourned to Central City's dressing room where the doctor examined Statton's shoes. There's no doubt about it. Statton poisoned Deegan and the evidence is still on the spikes. The Bayville team elects not to call the police. Rather, they will deal with this themselves. The team bide their time and a few months later, Statton's star had risen, exactly what he had murdered for. He therefore does not find it suspicious that a letter from his fan club should invite him to inspect a plaque to be erected in his honour at Central City Ballpark. Nor does the time, 11pm, cause alarm bells to ring. Statton arrives to find the Bayville ball team and the doctor waiting for him. That night commemorative ball game took place using Herbie Statton's head as the ball his legs as the bat and the rest of his body parts scattered around. Herbie Statton did finally receive his plaque a plaque engraved with R.I.P. on it. Uh, as I've done before I did simplify the synopsis to make it easier for me but the story 
once again showing how far ahead of the curve comics were, starts with a nighttime baseball match piquing the reader's curiosity straight out of the gate. The Crypt Keeper even asks why this game is at night, hooking the reader in. The story then flashes back a few months to set the story up before cutting back to the present. If Dr. Wortham had concentrated on how well this story was structured and spoke to children about that and what the story's themes were, maybe he'd be remembered slightly more reverently. But no, he was doing everyone a favour for outlawing comics. Was he really? Yeah, he did me a favour. Staten's spiking Deegan is subtle, not too telegraphed, and a good example of setup and payoff, especially in a story this short. I have been pleasantly surprised by how well constructed these stories have been, especially given that this is older than my mum. I think that's pretty cool, actually. Because <laughs> didn't, these didn't feel like 50s comics, did they? No. Compared to when we did the interplanetary Batman, mm. and the Batman of Superman of Planet Z, or whatever it was, this doesn't feel like that in any way whatsoever. This feels like it could easily have been published in the 70s or the 80s. No, I, I felt it felt similar. Not as silly, but... I, I was just going to say, Foul Play no, no. was similar to the interplanetary Batman. It wasn't as silly as it, but it read similar to it. Did you think? I am. Uh, I, th- I thought these weren't in any way as dated. Well, I, I, I can usually tell how old a comic is just by how it reads. And uh, Depending what, on the dialogue. If you hadn't have known, what would you have picked these as being? Um, I, I, 60s, 70s, probably. See? So that's not 50s, honest, is it? It did read similar. No, I didn't think it did. I thought it read as much later. But the fact that you're guessing 60s, 70s kind of implies that it reads a little bit older. Well, that's, you know, okay, fair enough. Speaking of structure, Jerry Deegan slowly becoming more infected is exceptionally well done. It doesn't feel like it was too quick or too slow. He slowly starts getting dizzier and dizzier as page four progresses before he keels over as he's about to go to bat. Mm. I thought that was really good. The only rough patch in the issue... The Doctor and the Bayville team visit the visiting team's locker room and they've already left. Alright? So yeah. far, no problem. If they were the visiting team, though, and have already gone, why is Staten's equipment still in the locker? Wouldn't he have taken it with him? Yeah. Because surely, when you're the visiting team, you've got to get on a bus to go home, haven't you? Mm. So he wouldn't have left his stuff, though, would he? Unless he stayed over the night. I suppose that's possible, but that this was a very... Because I suppose it's America, so it is a very, very, very long distance between when you, you can get around in a day. Yeah. But all right, I suppose that's possible. They were staying over the night and going on the next day. All right, well, no prize. I like that. Staten's ego is his downfall, as he doesn't think there's anything odd about meeting at a closed ballpark at 11 at night. That doesn't say spider sense tingling well, at all. I knew what was going to happen, and I thought that was suspicious. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't mind going to, a ba- uh, to this uh, ballpark at, at 11, 11 at o'clock night. at night. Yeah, do you don't want to meet in the daytime? We, your fans, who are part <laughs> of an unofficial group. <laughs> that you've never heard of. <laughs> yes, okay, fair enough. Uh, I thought this was the best of these stories we've covered so far. Mm. And I thought this is what all EC comics were like. This is a standard tale of cheating and teamwork with a liberal sprinkling of revenge. The story is quite standard until the end in a gruesome and quite revolting twist worthy of Rod Surly, although I doubt that this would have seen the airwaves as an episode of Twilight Zone. The idea that Bayville carves Stan to pieces, presumably still alive, then uses body parts to play a baseball game in honour of the fallen friend is gruesome enough, but then they then bury him at the pitcher's mound with a plaque that reads... 
Herbie Staten picture murderer is exceptionally over the top. I like the panel with his head. Yeah, they're using his head as the ball and his eyeballs popping out. Yeah. Um, the a, intestines on the floor. Yeah, and his leg is the bat. Yeah. It's, it is a bit gruesome at the ending, isn't it? There is also the idea as well, planted by the Crypt Keeper in his closing monologue, that the head is still out there in the stands. He never found his head, so they whacked it as a home run. It's out there somewhere. Could be anywhere. So some little child could find that. Yeah. Well done, Bayville. <laughs> oh, dear. The art is excellent throughout. For those of us who only know Jack Davis from his Mad Magazine work, these EC stories have been a revelation, showing what an excellent artist he was, and his realistic style complements this tale perfectly. The realistic art offsets the final shot, which shows Staten's decapitated head, his eyeball falling out, his skull cracked open, about to be pitched to the batter. Whilst a good child psychiatrist would have taken this story and used it to teach kids a lesson about teamwork and fair play, Wortham instead used it to further his own agenda and practically killed an art form. Although I do have to say, you could use this in a slightly other way with kids, like, play for kids, or this will happen to you. That would scare the crap out of them, wouldn't it? Fairy tales. <laughs> yeah, Grimm's fairy tales were pre- pleasant little things, wouldn't they? Seems fair enough to me. You know, the art in this reminds me of what? Mike Dringenberg. Does it? The other guy you did the early issues of Sam. From Sam Man? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I can see that. Did you like this one? I, I enjoyed this one um, at the end. I'm well, not, sometimes with stories like this, it is the twist ending that makes yeah, the story. Isn't I'm, it? I'm not a fan of sports, and let's be honest, this issue is just about sports. It's just and specifically about baseball. Let's be honest, we couldn't give a rat's ass about. Yeah, yeah. But and then the end is like, oh yeah, baseball with a guy's body parts. This could be interesting. <laughs> Turn off, turn off the college netball. I want to watch uh, body part baseball. Yeah, it's the female volleyball that you're watching, though, dude. And you're not watching it because it's volleyball. Oh. And female swimming as well is quite popular as well. Did, wasn't it you who woke up early just to watch the women's volleyball on the Olympics? I don't know what you're talking about at all. I didn't get up early just because of that reason. I was probably not tired. That's all I'm going to say to you. Next! The Switch from Tales from the Crypt 45. Written by Carl Wessler with art by Graham Ingalls, this was meant to be the last issue of Tales of the Crypt, although as it turned out, one more issue featuring material from what was meant to be EC's fourth horror comic, The Crypt of Terror, would be published. This story, the last in the issue, is therefore the last Tales of the Crypt story to be published after the Wortham trial caused Gaines to pull the plug. This story was adapted into an episode of the TV show, which was directed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. The main protagonist in the story was played by Rick Rosovich, who, trivia fans, is Ginger's boyfriend in The Terminator. The cover by Jack Davis shows a man and a rat, presumably the only survivors of the sinking ship behind them, clinging to a floating piece of driftwood. That's not one of the better covers, that, because no. I don't know why you would be terrified of a rat. Unless it's the thingy book. Is it a James Herbert book? Unless it's the rats, yeah. yeah I suppose that's possible. Yeah. The Witch's Cauldron. So this is a mad witch story. An old millionaire, Carlton Webster, falls in love with a young woman, Linda Stewart, but he's afraid that if she finds out he's wealthy, she will only be interested in his money. He therefore doesn't mention his wealth and proposes to Linda, but she puts him off, telling him his face is too old-looking. 
After speaking to his doctor, Carlton is referred to a man whose methods are dubious but desperate. He asks the doctor, Hans Faulkner, to do an expensive face transplant with a younger man, George Booth. Linda is amazed that he now looks young, but puts him off again by saying he still has an old man's body. He gives more of his fortune to the young man and the doctor to transfer torsos. She still isn't satisfied because of his legs, and because she's a woman. He spends the last of his fortune to swap out his legs, goes back to Linda, who has mysteriously moved in the night. Heading to her new apartment, he finds she has married. Behind the door, he sees George Booth, as all Linda ever wanted was to marry a millionaire. <laughs> the moral of this story, kids. Um, Women are scum. <laughs> that's not the moral of the story. <laughs> at all. Like that issue with Detective. <laughs> Which one? Uh, issue Zero. The one where he and Bruce is living with the... Oh, yes, yeah. yes, the Detective Comic Zero up from New 52. Yeah. Where the moral of the story was, women are scum. Women are, yeah. That's not the moral of this story, and not something that we personally subscribe to. <laughs> Legal disclaimer. Uh, again, it's the writing that is where the meat of this story is. The captions are wonderfully alliterative, with some excellent wordplay, very well-written stuff. Which I'm sure Dr. Wortham, with the extensive <laughs> knowledge of comics he must have had to be able to talk about them with such proficiency, recognised. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, he looked at this and went, Hi, horror hooligans. This is your shiver chef, ready with another mess of mouldy morbidity from my cruddy cauldron. If you'll just glide in on the gook into the haunt of fear, the old witch, your hostess in heaping helpings of foul fur, will wind up CK's muck mag in my usual gore storytelling manner with a delightful dish of delirium delvings called the switch come on that's some re- good writing there that is do you think Wortham read the comics no I don't think, I don't think, think Wortham could read I think he was just a kid and he looked at the pictures yeah honestly <laughs> yeah. It, it's at school this must be bad yeah I honestly think he didn't read them at all well n- nobody with half a brain could read these and not appreciate that they, yes they're gory but they're actually very well written. Mm. Man was an idiot. Pure well, and simple. It's like I keep saying about the video game thing at the moment. The only people who think that video games inspire cr- uh, crimes and violent actions are the people who don't play video people games. People who don't play... Well, it's, it's always been the same. Yeah. The relatively brief length of the story does leave some questions, such as how Linda and Carlton met, which he's never yeah, even mentioned, is it? Yeah, just sat there going, I've fallen in love yeah. with someone. That's nice. Does she know this? Yeah, well, that, that was my thing with this. She... Why would he think she was interested in it? Yeah. Going through this story, I don't see her giving off any signals whatsoever. Well, this guy seems pretty creepy. I know, look at the, the smile on that second panel. Yeah, well, he's, he's fallen from 22-year-old bit of hot stuff, hasn't he? And he's clearly 903. <laughs> so, um, the other problem I had with it was Linda's motivation seemed to change without provocation. She goes through the entire story telling Carlton he's too old, implying she's after a hunk of her own age, but the twist ending gives lie to this, where she clearly isn't bothered what the guy looks like, as long as he's rich. And ultimately, this is why the story didn't work for me as well as the others we've looked at. If Linda had just said, but you're not rich, we wouldn't have had a story. Yeah. So it was built on a faulty well, premise. because he said he didn't have much money. She didn't want to upset him. Is that what you think? That's what I'm going for. Alright, fair enough. Page three, we're told Carlton made his money via his imagination. I wish I could imagine a ton of money. <laughs> oh, in fact, I can. Yeah. It doesn't make it appear. We're all imagining here. How about you working? I'm the manager. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Again, one of the reasons this tale doesn't work, Carlton has been given a new lease on life and a new younger body. Ditch Linda. Just bugger off and go and make some money. 
He's got everything now. He's got the brain and the look. Especially if you can imagine it, yeah? Yeah, let's make lots of money. Hans Faulkner, who is the doctor, is and magnificent. Is, of course, German. Oh, yes. You want a complete new face? You'll have to get it from a handsome young man. No, ach, don't look at me like I'm insane. I have done this operation before, yeah? Yeah? And I love, there's a wonderful bit. Is it earlier on? Uh, in my country, no, do believe me. They say I'm a quack. And you're like, gee, I wonder why. <laughs> Frankenstein the Dark Years. He was actually my favourite one, isn't it? Yeah. He does, he looks like actor Roy Brocksmith, who's in Total Recall, and he's in loads of stuff, you'd know him if you saw him. And Brocksmith is in the TV episode that adapted this story. Mm. So I don't recall seeing this segment, although I did watch Tales from the Crypt, when it heard over here as part of Night Time. But if Brocksmith does play Faulkner, that's really good casting. Yeah. I'd be really impressed with that. I presume Rick Rosovich plays the young stud muffin. Because mm. he was quite young and bulky. If he's got the body parts of a younger man, mm. he keeps saying throughout this issue that he has youth, but he doesn't. Why not? Well, because he's, he's still an old man, he's just in the body of a young man. I know, but presumably he's in the body of a young man, so he's going to live another 80 odd years. And they only had a face transplant, so his head will still be the same. And how, how do you go about having a chest transplant? But not the arms and the legs. Yeah. <laughs> and what about the genital area? Uh, well, yeah. He's still an old man <laughs> Where did the torso end? <laughs> yeah, so he's got this young studly muffin, but he can't get to, to perform, because down <laughs> yeah. there he's still an old bloke. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And okay. d- is it the, his entire torso? Does he have the other man's insides and... There's a lot of reasons this story didn't actually Where work. Where are all the scars? Oh, Dr. Faulkner's far too good for stuff like that, man. Okay. Uh, there's a red herring at the bottom of page four. Faulkner smiles evilly. Although, to be fair, he just looks evil whenever he does anything, yeah. doesn't he? <laughs> and mentions that he's made sure that George keeps in touch in case they need him again. I thought we were going to find out they were all in on it. Yeah. And it was a trick to dupe the old guy out of his money, but they didn't go down that route. Mm. They did a completely different thing. But... This one felt very familiar, which isn't really fur, as when this was published it was probably new, but from our perspective this is a very predictable tale. Let's not say it's bad. There is a good message in here about not lying to your loved ones and accepting yourself as you are, and the art is excellent as ever, but there's no getting around the fact that this story has been ripped off so much since this, and even before this was published it's very similar to an H.G. Wells story called The Story of the Late Dr. Elvesham. It's enjoyable enough. But it wasn't an auspicious ending to Tales from the Crypt, really, was it? I mean, I know there was another issue after this. Yeah. But for all intents and purposes, this was the the end of the uh, the comic. There's an excellent one-page article in this comic, only credited to the EC gang that mentions the Senate hearings and how they want readers to write in and do something about it and make their voice be heard. It's very cynical, implying, hell, outright stating, that Wortham, not mentioned by name, a noticed, is only doing it for the notoriety and the money, and that parents want to blame comics for their bad parenting, and that politicians are bandwagon jumping because it's nearly election time, and he's even got in touch with his own child psychologist to debunk what Wortham says, Mm. which I thought was quite interesting. It's a good editorial, but sadly too little too late oddly prophetic though mm. all of that would turn out to be true yeah Wortham was only doing it to make a name for himself finally 
the last story we are covering in our look at EC Comics is one considered a classic. All through the house from Vault of Horror issue 35, the story has no written by credit, but was penciled and inked by Johnny Craig. It's a pretty notorious story. It was adapted into the 1972 film we mentioned earlier, with Joan Collins as the housewife, and again into an episode of the TV show starring Larry Drake and Murray Ellen Trainer, and directed by Robert Zemeckis. The cover by Johnny Craig shows a negligee-clad lady screaming at a casket that has appeared in her living room in front of a Christmas tree as, unbeknownst to her, a man proposed to cleave her head from her neck thanks to the axe he is swinging at her. It's not a very nice Christmas present. Well, unless that's what she asked for. (laughs) Casket. What if there's not a body in it? What if she just wanted a... Um, what if she just wanted her own coffin? An alternative Like Tom Baker's bought his own headstone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. It's a Christmas story. She thought beds were too mainstream. So she was sleeping in a coffin. Maybe yeah. she's a vampire. Yeah. That'd be a twist. <laughs> it certainly would, yeah. So he's not going to... Well, yeah, you can behead a vampire. What twist? There's garlic inside. Yeah, that seems fair enough. Her husband was dead. Finally, she was free. It was all planned. The death on this cold Christmas Eve. The house miles from the nearest neighbours. All that remained was to sneak out of the house now their daughter was asleep, dispose of the body and then come home and dream about the insurance money. She's about to do just that when the daughter, Carol, this is a Christmas story, wakes up asking for Santa. The woman gets her back to sleep and then tends to business. She turns on the radio and cleans off the poker, her murder weapon of choice, before preparing the body. Suddenly, a news bulletin. A man has escaped from a nearby state hospital. The man is a homicidal maniac obsessed with killing women and has managed to steal a Santa Claus outfit. Women are all being advised to stay indoors. This upsets her plans. She can't leave lest the maniac find her, yet she must be rid of the body. Suddenly, there is a knock at the door and the woman looks outside, seeing a man in a Santa Claus outfit. Panicked, the woman starts boarding up windows and locking doors and stashing Joseph's body in the closet. With all this accomplished, the woman checks on her daughter. But her room is empty. She rushes downstairs to see the door wide open and Carol stood there with Santa Claus. In contrast to most tales from EC, this one is introduced by jolly old St. Nick, smiling of face and jolly of demeanour. And if that doesn't make you suspicious, nothing will. Turns out it's the old witch in disguise. It fooled me. It did it. <laughs> did it really? I thought it was going to be the Crypt Keeper, but then I remember this was Vault of Horror and not Tales from the Crypt. Mm. Wonderful artwork by Johnny Craig with some excellent shading and detail, particularly panel two of page two. Yeah. Again, as we've said in a couple of the other stories we've covered, there is some good foreshadowing in these stories. Here it's the young daughter Carol stating that she wants to see Santa for herself. Without signposting it, the writer gives away the ending, hiding it in plain sight. Although the expositional news network broadcast, copyright Michael Bailey, is a little bit on the nose. Do you want to hear the news broadcast? Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. We've received a report from the Worldwide News Bureau that a homicidal maniac has escaped from the state hospital for the insane. He has brutally murdered four women, and all citizens are warned to remain off the streets. This man is extremely dangerous. Repeat, he is extremely dangerous. Another report has just been handed me. Here is the description of the escape maniac. He is six feet three inches tall, 210 pounds, has dark eyes, shaggy black hair. It is reported he is now wearing a Santa Claus costume, which he's taken from a man in the village of Pleasantville. 
And then it carries on. Doesn't stop there. He is believed to be headed north. Police officials state that he will not harm children. Plot point. And will only injure men if he is provoked. Plot point. It is said that he is obsessed with the killing of women. Plot point. All four women have already been murdered and been attacked and viciously disfigured. All women are warned to remain indoors. This man is extremely dangerous. Further bulletins will be brought to you as soon as they are received. Stay tuned now for click. That's a typical expositional news network, isn't yeah. it? And of course he's a homicidal maniac. I mean, this is, well, yeah. He, but he's not just a cat burglar, it's a homicidal... No, a homicidal maniac. maniac. Yeah, yeah. And he only kills women. Yeah. He doesn't touch children. Nope. And he doesn't kill men. I'm thinking that EC Comics <laughs> had something against women. <laughs> well, I thought... Either women are scum or they're dead. That was more a case of she couldn't then pass her husband's murder off as him. Yeah. Because they just made a point of saying, oh, he doesn't attack men unless provoked. I, I was thinking maybe they could have her voluntarily being disfigured herself so that she could get away with the murder. Alright, so you thought that where they were going to go? Yeah. I, well, I love the what's-his-name with it, that she's got this dead body that she has to try and get rid of, but now she can't go out despite her meticulous planning. But yeah. she can't call the police when she sees the Father Christmas guy on her doorstep because she's got a dead body in the house. I loved that setup. Mm. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And uh, her panic was exceptionally well done because it just increases. She goes from event to event, changing her mind about what's important and flitting from one thing to the next because she's stressed out. First, she's got to get rid of the body. No, I've got to protect Carol. No, I've got to board the windows. And she's got all these things that she wants to do at once and can't do them because yeah. she can only concentrate on one thing at once. I, I loved this one. I thought this one was exceptionally well done. Mixing crime noir staple, the femme fatale, with the horror staple, the homicidal woman killer. Unlike some of these stories, this felt perfectly paced. It wasn't too long or too short, and it filled the page count admirably. At first, I did think this would just become a stalker-type story, but we never see the Santa Claus figure until the last panel. The story instead squeezing every last moment of tension out of the woman's dilemma. She's never named, although it's probably Noelle given her daughter is Carol, and the story makes her situation remarkably tense. She is to hide the body, board up the house, try not to alert her daughter as she does so, whilst being in constant fear of her life. There's the delicious irony that although the maniac is outside, she can't call the police lest they find her husband's body. The ending is especially tense as the story ends with her seeing the deranged killer in a Santa Claus garb, holding her daughter's hand stood in the doorway, and it's left to the story's omniscient narrator, in this case the old witch, to tell us that the sack that she's holding contains the woman's remains. The art is excellent, very heavy on the shading, and I didn't think there was a wasted panel in this taut little tale. I did feel a little sorry for Orphan Carol, though. Yeah, she's just watched her mum die. Yeah. And then she's going to grow up knowing and that then it was her fault. Well, and then she's going to go in the basement and find her dead dad. Yeah. So, it's not well, a happy Carol. Christmas for Carol, is it? No. <laughs> Let's be brutally honest. What did you think of this one? I, I didn't mind it. I liked it, but... Well, I didn't at the same time, I guess. Why not? What did you not like about this one? I don't know. It's just, I, I, I wasn't too big on the horror thing. I just didn't think there was much in the way of horror to make it that interesting to me personally. Right, okay. So we've not managed to convince you about the magnificence of EC then? Well, I don't know, because the other one, the Switch, I thought that one was pretty... For me, that was my favourite, but that's because I've always had a little... 
I don't know, I've always been a little put off with the whole plastic surgery thing. It creeps me out a little bit. Does it? It does, yeah. All right. What, women with trout pouts and no lines on their face? It's just, I don't know, it just creeps me out. Needles and things inside your Oh, face. right, the needle thing more than anything. All right, fair enough. I, I thought these were mostly... Uh, excellent series of stories. I thoroughly enjoyed them. I thoroughly enjoyed reading them. I thoroughly enjoyed covering them. EC Comics was sadly cut short by Wortham and his cronies' desire to find a scapegoat for the problems of society. And we must remain ever vigilant. <laughs> There's always one conniving politician or do-gooding parents group who are out to make a name for themselves by labelling something as bad for our children. I'm perfectly capable of deciding what my children are capable of watching and reading, thanks very much. Because I consider that to be, you know, my job as a parent <laughs> to actually know my own children. And you've done a great job of it with me, so... Yeah! Was that a test run? Yes! <laughs> and you turned out alright. Well. So, so I figured I could let the kids read Preacher at a very young age. <laughs> Unfortunately, the other two haven't even been interested. No. So, fair enough. So you were my test run and that went well, but I never needed it. <laughs> I never needed it again. So, okay... Despite the persecution, however, EC's legacy stands tall. The words Tales from the Crypt are still well known in the pop culture landscape, whilst Dr. Wortham is, thankfully, a mere footnote. I just find it funny how everyone loves comics now, and everyone loves the Beatles now, and everyone loves everything, but no one remembers the people who thought they were bad, and tried to ban them. Yeah, and Elvis was only shot from the neck up because his <laughs> gyrations were considered provocative. <laughs> Nobody talks about that anymore, does Elvis, it? the original twerk. Yeah, there you go. See? There is nothing new. No. It's all cyclical. Next time on an all-new episode. Oh, before we do that, we've got to thank James for suggesting that we do that because I thought it was a good idea, that. I like that. It was a nice little break. And obviously we planned it of because course. we did horror comics last week as well, didn't we? Yeah. So it was a little mini-season. And crime before that. Yeah, crime noir. So we've done a lovely little three-week season, though, that we that absolutely, planned totally in planned in advance. Yeah. <laughs> and if you believe that, I've got You've this bridge long in San Francisco I want to sell you. <laughs> anyway, next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, Dreadful Birthday Dear Joker, kicks off. This time. Thank you very much. <laughs> kicks off with. No, I'm not going to tell you with what, just because I've already changed my mind on this several first episode times. several times. I'm looking in the book, lovely listener, and week one of Dreadful Birthday is crossed off there, it's crossed off there, that's got an arrow, that's got an arrow, we've moved that to there and that to there. And even today, one yes. week before we record the episode, I've moved a couple of issues around. Yeah. So I'm not going to tell you what we're covering, because I may change my mind again. But anyway, it's Dreadful Birthday, Dear Joker, and surely the not knowing yeah. is part of the whole chaos thing that the Joker's a fan of, apart from when he meticulously plans what he's going to do. But says that he doesn't meticulously plan. Exactly right. Right, we'll see you next week. Truly, it can be said we've got bats in our belfry and never touch another man's rhubarb. See you next week. Bye bye. <laughs> Goodbye. Is it?
the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.